Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Whale Nerds Podcast. This is episode number 52. My name is Slater Moore, and I'm here with Eric and Caitlin. Hey, everyone. Hello. And we have a special guest. Yeah. We have Robin Baird on from Cascadia Research Collective. I'm really excited to hear from him about all of his work. He actually does a lot of work out where I am now in the Hawaiian Islands. So um, if you want to start with just what your current projects are with Cascadia, and then we'll dive into it, Robin, that would be awesome. Sure. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me on and happy to be here. Uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing in recent years has been focusing in Hawaii on a number of different species of, of odontocetes there. We, uh, we have active photo ID catalogs of 11 different species of Hawaiian odontocetes, uh, as well as collecting information on, on movements through satellite tagging, uh, diving behavior also through satellite tagging. And we also have a, a number of uh, collaborators who are doing work on genetics, um, both in terms of population structure and social organization. So we uh, collect a lot of biopsy samples and, and share those with various um, either PhD students or, or other collaborators. And in, in the last couple of years, we've also been using drones to look at behavior and, and collect breath samples from a, f a few different species. So lot, lots of different things. Awesome. You guys just finished a project in Kauai like two weeks ago, right? And um, yeah. I saw, yeah. so Jordan Lerma works with you. So we, we all know him. Um, we met all got together earlier this summer. So we were kind of talking about some of the work he does with you. Yeah, the, um, the Kauai project uh, ended up being uh, 13 days long. Um, the Kauai work is primarily driven by Navy sonar effects. There's uh, most of the Navy uh, activity in Hawaii occurs off Kauai and Niihau, and, and we went out there prior to a, a submarine command course where mid-frequency active sonar is used, spent a bunch of time on the water trying to uh, put satellite tags out on individuals, mm -hmm. primarily to look at how they would then react to sonar exposure uh, during the, the submarine command course, but also doing a lot of photo ID and, and biopsy sampling associated with that project. And is that mainly on uh, all odontocetes, or is that just false killer whales? Uh, that's on all odontocetes. The uh, tags, what what species we get tags on really depends on what we encounter out there. Their uh, conditions off Kauai can be pretty restrictive. So um, we were able to get one tag out on a shortfin pilot whale and two tags out on bottlenose dolphins. Uh, we, we did see uh, false killer whales one day uh, during the project, but they just weren't uh, quite approachable enough. So, mm. but, you know, there's, we're, we're trying to look at all the different species that are exposed to Navy sonar and how they react. And each species uses the area quite differently and, and um, you would expect them to react quite differently to sonar as well. That's cool. I actually saw some submarines like right while you guys were out in Kauai. They were like over on the Maui side, just like I don't know if they're staging or what. They were anchored outside of Lahaina Harbor, so that's interesting timing. They must have been getting ready for the exercises. Yeah. Now, Robin, what are the actual reactions from most of the species? What do you see happening once uh, uh, you know sonar is produced? Well, it's it's extremely variable. We we've had tags on um, four or five different species uh, associated with sonar exercises before, mm -hmm. and um, you know the species that are that are known to show really strong reactions to to 
mid-frequency sonar are primarily beaked whales, Cuvier's mm -hmm. beaked whales and Blainville's beaked whales. And um, Cuvier's we just don't see off of Kauai, uh, even though there's a resident population of, of them off of Kona. Uh, Blainville's beaked whales, uh, we don't see them very often off Kauai, and we've never been able to get a tag out on them prior to one of these exercises. Uh, but it's known from, from work that some collaborators with the Navy are doing using the hydrophone range off Kauai that uh, when sonar uh, is used on the range, the beaked whales basically become silent and move away. Okay. And, uh, the other species, it's been, it's been interesting. Uh, you know, I think one of the key things in terms of understanding the reactions or the lack of reactions is, is whether or not the animals are resident to the area or part of open ocean populations that are just moving through. And, okay. and the Navy's been using sonar off Kauai for, for over 40 years. And so for those species or those populations that are resident to the islands, uh, they have probably been exposed to Navy sonar multiple times a year for their entire lives. Okay. And, and, and in, in that case, I think they, it doesn't come as a real surprise to them when, when, when sonar comes on. Compare, compare that to an open ocean animal that mm -hmm. you know, be moving over thousands of kilometers and, and happens to be near Kauai when, when sonar is used. That animal may never have been exposed to yeah. high-intensity sonar in the past, and so it's, a, it's a much more of a surprise. And a, and a lot of the responses then depend on whether or not it's a, a novel stimulus um, and, and they're reacting to that versus something that they may find uh, aversive and, and move away from it, but without the, the, um, the type of uh, panic response that, that, that may occur in some other species. Yeah, okay. And when they're doing, when the Navy's doing the sonar, how long can that last for? Well, the projects that we've been doing have been occurring um, just before these submarine command courses. And the submarine command courses are uh, typically about two and a half to three days long. And mm. and a submarine command course, when you think about it, it's, a, it, it's a, a basically a training course for submarine commanders. So... There's one or two surface vessels that are basically trying to track down uh, a submarine, and the submarine's trying to avoid them. And so the surface vessels are, are it's sort of a free-flowing type of exercise where the, the surface vessels, their, their goal is to try to find the submarine, and the submarine's goal is to try to avoid them. And so they, they could be using sonar uh, off and on, um, you know, semi-regularly over that entire two and a half days. And they, there's also some evidence, again, this is uh, coming from um, some collaborators with the Navy who have been using the hydrophone range, that a lot of the animals that are on the range may be uh, just reacting even to the presence of the vessels uh, as they come onto the range prior to the, the use of sonar. And in particular, Blainville's beaked whales, uh, they, they seem to move off the range even before the exercise starts. Wow. Uh, so... Uh -huh. You know, it's 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 probably quite different um, those fairly predictable uh, sonar exercises than uh, a navy vessel that just happens to be transmitting and either or ha transiting uh, you know through the area uh, and happens to you know turn on their mid-frequency active sonar either to test it or um, as some sort of uh, short-term training scenario and and. You know, different different populations, different species are, are going to react depending on on those types of circumstances. Mm -hmm. How so? 
is the area that is considered the range, uh, like an ideal foraging habitat for a lot of those species? Like, what's the, do you have an idea of what the disturbance level is when they're on there using that space and then the whales leave? Yeah, well, we, um, and sorry, a, a call's coming in. I'm just going to turn it off. <laughs> so the ringing stops in the background. Um, the, uh, so we've been doing satellite tagging with a number of different species in Hawaii for many years. And from the tag data, we have a pretty good idea of what areas are important to the different species. Uh, so off of, off of Kauai and Nihau in particular, um, the, the species that we have a lot of information from are, are shortfin pilot whales, uh, bottlenose dolphins, and rough-toothed dolphins. And for those three species, and this is based on data that, that goes back over five, six, or seven years, um, for those three species, uh, their actual core areas of, of use happen to coincide pretty, uh, pretty consistently with the Navy range. And, you know, the Navy can and does use sonar uh, over a very, very large area, but the, the reason why a lot of these activities off Kauai are concentrated uh, in a relatively small area is because of a hydrophone range they have there, um, almost 200 bottom-mounted hydrophones. And so we're able to look at, at uh, overlap between these different populations in terms of uh, their core areas and the hydrophone range. and um, you know, for all three of those species, bottlenose, rough-toothed dolphins, and shortfin pilot whales, their their core area happens to overlap with with the range uh, quite considerably. So they yeah. they definitely it's an important it's an important habitat for them, um, but it also means that they've they've had lots of prior exposure. Yeah, and it's kind of difficult to convince the U.S. Navy to move their operations <laughs> somewhere else when they've got all that equipment installed there. <laughs> so we all yeah. have to coexist, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I actually think that um, those particular populations, uh, like I said, they've been exposed to Navy sonar probably for their entire lives, and and so I think they react a lot less than than naive animals. Uh, I would I would say a better strategy if if the Navy really wanted to minimize uh, effects on on other populations or on those same species elsewhere is is to actually restrict their Navy activities, their sonar use to one relatively small area. Um, you know, I think when you think about populations off of Kona, for example, where there's a lot of resident species that are that are known to be susceptible to the impacts of, of Navy sonar, uh, those are the ones that I think are more at risk from, from just occasional sonar use off of, off of uh, Hawaii Island. Yeah. So would you say during the course of like the two and a half to three days that they're using the sonar, that there is an observed desensitivity, desensitiv I can't even say it. They're like, <laughs> the animals become more acclimated to the use as it goes on. There's like less reactions over the course of that two days, three days that they're using it. Yeah, it's interesting. So for, for bottlenose dolphins and rough-toothed dolphins and pilot whales, uh, when we've had tagged animals that are exposed to sonar, they're, they're clearly not fleeing the area in, in any major way. Um, we've, we've had some evidence that they m may be moving off the range prior to the sonar use, like I, I mentioned for the beaked whales. And then uh, for all three species, and also we had one, one case where we had um, false killer whale satellite tag during a Navy exercise. Uh, so for all four of those species, uh, we've had 
animals move closer to the sonar source when the sonar is being used. So I, I think I think your 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 question is spot on that even over a two and a half day period, they're you know they're recognize they're they're getting used to the navy source um, and uh, potentially you know moving it back into areas that are important to them. Uh, they're still staying. We're able to work with the navy scientists, and they're able to. Uh, you know, we have the satellite tag data. They know from the hydrophone range when and where sonar is being used. And so we're able to take the sonar data and the satellite tag data and uh, and look at exactly uh, what uh, estimated receive levels the animals are hearing uh, when sonar is being used. And they're they're moving into areas that um, that are, uh, you know, well above their hearing range, uh, but they're they're um, not moving really close to the vessels, so mm -hmm. they're they're still staying at at areas that are um, below the sound pressure levels that would cause hearing damage, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, because it's it, I imagine the whole thing's really loud. The boats, the the sonar's really loud and obnoxious. So. And has yes. there been any cases of uh, strandings after these documentations of the sonar being used? Uh, well, in Hawaii, there's there's a couple um, uh, possible cases where where sonar is, has been identified either as the the likely cause of a stranding or 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 uh, just happens to be occurring in the same place and same time and 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 might be might have caused a stranding but but haven't necessarily been investigated in in any great detail. The one that's most well known is the Hanalei Bay melon-headed whale. Uh, event uh, that happened during RIMPAC back in um, 2004. And in that case, uh, a big group, 150 to 200 melonheaded whales were seen swimming into Hanalei Bay uh, while sonar was being used uh, to the northwest of Hanalei Bay. And Hanalei Bay, if you're not familiar with it, is right on the north shore of Kauai. It's, a, it's the largest embayment um, on the north shore of, shore of Kauai. And what's thought to have happened there is that the the whales uh, were sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time um, when when sonar started to be used and um, and their way of uh, escaping that was to move in into the the shallow waters of the bay. The the group did not strand uh, and a lot once so once it once they were detected and they were witnessed coming into the bay in one one big wave of animals. Um, the Navy was contacted, the Navy stopped using sonar, and then local residents basically worked together to, to herd the animals out of the bay. Oh, wow. And so that was a, a really a good outcome, obviously. Only one animal ended up stranding, a calf that must have got separated in the, the chaos of the event. Uh, another case off of Kauai that um, uh, I think is fairly convincing uh, is a, a lone dwarf sperm whale. And, and in that case, the animal um, ended up stranding um, just uh, uh, in the mouth of the Kilauea River uh, on the north shore of Hawaii um, shortly after uh, one of these submarine command courses started up. Uh, that animal um, ended up being euthanized, uh, but when they did the necropsy, it had a full stomach, which implies that it wasn't you know, debilitated in any way, um, and it had nothing, uh, no obvious reason why it would have would have stranded so i think it was another case where um the animal was just trying to get away from from sonar again it got 
in sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. And and both melonheaded whales and dwarf sperm whales are are not resident to Kauai and Nihau, unlike the, the species I've oh. mentioned. So okay. for them, yeah, for them, I think it was probably a, a a novel experience. They're just all of a sudden they're they're exposed to the sonar and their reaction is to flee and 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 um, because of the way they did that, they ended up sort of putting themselves into dangerous situations. Yeah. Okay. So how long have you been doing these surveys for Odonisites around the Hawaiian Islands? It's been quite a few years, right? Yeah, I originally uh, moved uh, to Maui back in, in late uh, 1998. Uh, lived on Maui for about a year and a half. And while there, uh, started up uh, photo ID with false killer whales and bottlenose dolphins. Um, and uh, the work has basically been ongoing ever since. So uh, I think we're in our 21st year, 22nd year now. And uh, I, I'm based on the mainland. I've lived uh, in um, Washington State since 2003, uh, but come out to Hawaii uh, uh, a couple times a year, uh, sometimes three or four projects a year, sometimes two or three projects a year. And the, the projects, uh, we have you know one project, for example, in, in, in 2020, we've had one project on Kauai we're likely to have one off of uh, Kona and then another one uh, either off of Lanai or Oahu. So we, we tend to spread the projects out off different islands. Um, some of the species move among the islands pretty regularly, things like false killer whales. Uh, the, the resident, the endangered resident false killer whales will go all the way from you know, east of, of Hawaii Island to west of Niihau. So in theory, you could work off any island and, and see them, but other species have uh, tend to have island-specific populations. So the, the bottlenose dolphins that are off of Kona are different from the ones off Maui Nui, um, different from the ones off Oahu, and, and there's a, a fourth population off Kauai and Niihau. So in order to try to get information throughout the islands, we have to sort of spread the, the field efforts around. Yeah, cool. Um, so with the false killer whales, the insular population, you're working with some, some collaborators around the islands. And what we've been told at Pacific Whale Foundation is one of the big threats is like depredation and fishing gear and entanglements and things and stationary fishing gear. Um, is that kind of what you guys are focusing on is trying to figure out like what's going on with the population? What are the threats? That kind of thing. It's not so much sonar. It's more other interactions or is it kind of anything and everything? Yeah, well, false killer whales in Hawaii um, tend to feed on the same types of things that humans like to catch. So, yeah. you know, mahi-mahi, ono, uh, ahi, uh, mongchong, they they also feed on a lot of reef-associated uh, game fish like aluas, um, bonefish. Um, so, so basically everything that they're feeding on are, are also um, targeted by both recreational fisheries and, and commercial fisheries in Hawaii. And, and, and that's where the, the conflict comes from. And, you know, false killer whales, if they see a, a, a fish on the end of a line, um, you know, they're well known to, to take those fish uh, from fishermen and, and uh, some, some probably very, very small percentage of the time that that happens, they, they can get hooked as a result. Uh, so fishery interactions, I think, are are likely the the biggest threat to the population um, by far. And and you know back in the in the 80s, 
the false killer whale population in Hawaii was much, much larger. And at that time, uh, happened to correspond with when the longline fishery was rapidly expanding in Hawaii. Uh, back up until about 1991, 1992, longline fishing could occur quite close to shore. Uh, there were no uh, sort of limits around the islands that that uh, that that affected where they could fish. And and I think that false killer whales were um, were regularly taking fish from long lines. It's, it's something that was documented as early in Hawaii as 1963. And, and probably a lot of the population reduction happened back in the, in the, the 80s and 90s. Um, nowadays, they, they certainly take fish from fishermen and, and uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to get an idea of what proportion of the individuals in the population uh, are involved in those types of uh, events. Uh, so one of the things we're doing um, is is looking at the mouth lines of individuals. Uh, so if if uh, if when they're surfacing, if the head comes out of the water, we try to get head photos from folks who uh, are in the water with them that contribute photos to our catalogs. We're able to look at mouth line injuries from those as well. And and the mouth line injuries sometimes are uh, extremely obvious that the animal has been hooked in the mouth and and basically that line has pulled out. Yeah. Uh, so from that, uh, almost a quarter of the individuals in the in the endangered population have evidence of, of being previously hooked. Mm. So it's a it's a pretty high proportion of, of individuals in the population. Uh, but we're also we're also trying to just understand how the not only what the threats that the population is facing, but how they're how they're doing in terms of you know what the reproductive rates are, um, what the mortality rates are. Is the population increasing or decreasing? And and that relies on on photographs. And I, one 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 thing I think is really important in Hawaii uh, are the contributions of, of folks who work on the water or play on the water. We have a lot of uh, citizen science contributions um, uh, off all the islands. Uh, people who are you know have the opportunity to get photos when they're either running tours or uh, we, we get some photos from from commercial fishermen or or, or um, professional photographers or just amateur photographers. Uh, a lot of folks send in photos, and that that really makes a, a big difference. Uh, we have a grant right now that we're working on, uh, where we're we're buying uh, 14 camera systems, and and we're trying to get them to fishermen in Hawaii that oh, cool. that oh, are cool. interested in contributing. So uh, that's something we're we're slowly working on as well. That's awesome. If people do have photos, um, where, how should they get them to Cascadia or get them to you? Should they email them or is there like a protocol or? Yeah, well, we use, uh, you know, it works differently for different people depending on how um, tech savvy they are. But, uh, you know, folks send them to us through Dropbox or through uh, Hightail. Um, some folks who don't have in good internet connections will get them a a flash drive and, and they can just mail the flash drive to us. Uh, it, you know, if someone has been working on the water and has a lot of photos, then that's often the, the easiest way of doing it. Sure. Um, you know, we sending them by email. Uh, the problem is, you it know, really. We, yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, our, our email address for, for anyone who wants to contact us is just Hawaii at Cascadia Research .org. So it's a uh, you know, that, that comes to Sabra Mahaffey and I. The Sabra uh, is in charge of our photo ID, most of our photo ID catalogs. And uh, we also try to give uh, feedback to people who submit photos. So if someone sends us a photo of a uh, Blainville's beaked whale, we'll match it quickly to our catalog. And, 
and let them know whether it's a new individual or or an individual uh, that's been seen you know many times over the years and and provide some information on the sighting history uh, we just posted something uh, this morning on on cascadia's facebook page about a a bobnose dolphin that was photographed uh, just over a week ago off Oahu. Uh, it's the same individual that we've been monitoring now for for uh, about two years. Uh, oh, I that saw actually, that. Yeah. yeah, it was shot shot in the head. Um, oh yeah. And what? you know we know that um, because of citizen science photos. Uh, it was it was first photographed by um, folks folks on Oahu that. Um, you know the whole sighting history of this particular calf comes from from either tour operators or photographers from from Oahu that have been sending in photos. So it's really an amazing um, opportunity for us to learn more about the animals from from those types of contributions. Oh, that's awesome! It's such a that was I remember when the photos came out a couple of years ago. I could I couldn't believe that animal was going to survive, and here it is, what two years later since the first yeah. report. Right? That's mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, and it, yeah, I mean the 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 bullet uh, the bullet wound went right through the head, um, right above the, in front of the the melon um, in the front part of the melon, you know, above the the skull. So it's still uh, it's it's it is phenomenal that the animal survived. I think one of the reasons why it probably survived is it was um, a nursing calf when it was shot, and actually still seems to be uh, acting like it's being provisioned from its mom. So. I, I think that um, the question still remains is when it's finally weaned and, and on its own, whether or not there was any any damage to its uh, ability to echolocate and, and, yeah. and find prey. So it, it's uh, it's something that uh, we're, we're just going to be really interested to follow over time. Yeah. And so for something like the Blaineville, um, from a photo ID aspect, are you is it is it dorsal fin or is it modeling or is it both? Yeah, it, it's it's both. Some species, it's primarily pigmentation, and others, it's primarily uh, dorsal fins. But um, you know, Blaineville's beaked whales in Hawaii, and and this also applies to Cuvier's beaked whales, get bitten a lot by cookie cutter sharks, and and the the scars remain visible for for up to 20 years or more. So oh, wow. we're, yeah, they they unlike other species, uh, you know, pilot whales or false killer whales, when they're when they're bitten by cookie cutter sharks, the the um, wounds end up re-pigmenting to the same as the background color, whereas in in beaked whales they they basically um, pigment as gray or, or or white. So you can use that spotting pattern to identify individuals similar to the way you could use uh, you know um, pigmentation in blue whales um, uh, to identify them. And it it means that unlike most most of the other species, you know you need a perpendicular dorsal fin shot. Uh, but for both species of, of beaked whales, we can get photos from almost any angle and, and still have a, if it's an adult or, or a subadult with lots of lots of scars, still have a, a good chance of matching it to our catalog. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you have some grants you're working on, and then I'm assuming the Navy also helps fund some of your work as well because it's part of their obligation to do environmental assessments. How do you typically fund your work, those two sources, or are there other ways you guys are able to get funding? Yeah, well, I spend uh, I spend way more time than I would like to uh, writing grant proposals. <laughs> um, I feel like every scientist says that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, we have uh, funding from 
Um, National Marine Fisheries Service, we have a, a grant from the Pacific Island Fisheries Science Center uh, in, in Honolulu, and, and that particular grant uh, includes funding for a lot of our photo ID work. It helps fund uh, one of the people in the office pretty much full time doing doing uh, catalog work. Uh, we uh, also have been getting these contracts from the Navy uh, specifically for the work off Kauai, uh, but over the years have also received Navy funding through uh, Office of Naval Research or another program in the Navy called the uh, um, LMR, Living uh, Marine Resources uh, Program. And that has funded various types of work. It's funded work specifically with beaked whales off of Kona. It's funded work with uh, tag development. Uh, we've also received some funding from uh, Northwest Fisheries Science Center in Seattle. Uh, which uh, specifically to collect breath samples from a couple different species of Adonisites using a drone. And uh, uh, we've had some grants from uh, various nonprofit groups. Uh, groups like Dolphin Quest in Hawaii have been giving us funding for a number of years um, for various uh, aspects of the work. Uh, last year, they helped fund a, a project uh, that's uh, looking at epigenetic aging in false killer whales. Um, oh, cool. and, and we're still awaiting the results of that work, but, um, you know, we, it, it was something that was very difficult to get. It was, it's still at a fairly epigenetic aging is, is, uh, a fairly new technique as it's applied to whales and dolphins. It hasn't been done with very many species. And, um, so in, in that sense, it's a, a little bit experimental at this stage. Um, dolphin quest actually gave us another grant, uh, late last year to buy satellite tags that could be put on stranded animals in Hawaii, that that live strand. And um, there, there's this question, of course, when there's a live stranding of, of uh, what's the likelihood of the animal surviving? Uh, should it be euthanized or should it be returned to the water? And um, we're gonna be in uh, buying eight satellite tags, make those available to all the stranding response folks and um, then if they have an animal they think that could be returned to the water, they, they would have a tag that they could then put on and that would help uh, understand, you know, how, uh, how the animal survived, um, mm -hmm. where it went afterwards. It could potentially be used to uh, allow for follow-up of, of uh, these stranded animals that have been returned to the water. So um, another uh, nonprofit foundation has given us funding for some educational work. Uh, in the past, um, uh, we uh, bought copies. I, I published a book a couple years ago through University of Hawaii Press on on whales and dolphins in Hawaiian waters, and and one of the things the grant included was distributing copies of that book to all the high schools in Hawaii, uh, as well as to a number of uh, Native Hawaiian uh, environmental organizations. So just making it available as a resource uh, mm -hmm. for students and and for others in Hawaii. So. Uh, a lot of a lot of grant writing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. This this struggle. They, I took a technical writing class in college, but I don't think most science majors are like required to do that. And then you become a researcher, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have authored and co-authored a couple different books. Is the Whales and Dolphins of Hawaii the most recent one, or do you have some other ones that are? Have you done lately? I know there's been a few. Yeah, well, the um, the most recent is a chapter uh, in a book um, specifically on beaked whales, and and it focuses or it basically 
summarizes uh, everything we've learned about Cuvier's and Blainville's beaked whales uh, in Hawaiian waters over the years, and that came out last year. Um, the uh, the Whales and Dolphins of Hawaii book is certainly the mo the broadest uh, uh, resource available for for any any species in in Hawaiian waters. But um, no, I actually have just been uh, talking with the uh, University of Hawaii Press about um, putting together a proposal for a a field guide to uh, marine mammals in Hawaii that would be something that's smaller. People could easily take it out on 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 boats with them, but that'll that'll be a, a few years away, I think. Awesome. Um, so if you looked back at all the work you've done, um, what would you say is probably your the most meaningful or most informative project that you've been able to to finish and publish and maybe inform management with? Yeah, well, the uh, the false killer whale work uh, certainly um, is is up there. I think as the the most influential on management. We, uh, uh, you know, started working with false killer whales. Well, actually, for back in the late '80s and early '90s, I was one of the stranding coordinators for a stranded whale and dolphin program in British Columbia, and and we had the opportunity to. Uh, do necropsies on a couple false killer whales that stranded, one in 87 and one in 89. Um, and so ever, ever since then, I've actually been interested in that species. And one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why I originally moved to Hawaii is because of the opportunity to work with false killer whales. Um, our work uh, originally started out just looking at photo identification. I think the first report that we published on false killer whales um, about 2004 or so, uh, had an abundance estimate uh, based on mark recapture um, that suggested the population was quite small. Uh, we had been collecting uh, biopsy samples uh, as well in in, uh, in the early 2000s and collaborated with researchers at Southwest Fishery Science Center. And, and that early genetic work showed that the uh, false killer whales around the main Hawaiian Islands appeared to be different from false killer whales elsewhere in the world. Um, and we uh, published something in 2005 that showed high levels of injuries on the dorsal fins that suggest they were in, involved in fisheries interactions. So, you know, combination of the population being small, uh, genetically isolated, high levels of fisheries interactions. Um, when when information began com coming out uh, in around uh, um, 2008, 2009, that the population appeared to have declined quite a bit, that's actually what, what led to the original petition uh, by NRDC to, to list false killer whales as endangered or under the Endangered Species Act. And so that triggered the um, uh, National Marine Fisheries Service to uh, begin their, their um, uh, assessment of the population. And, and uh, that, that report uh, by NOAA came out in 2010. And uh, that, that, that report basically said the population is distinct. It's... Uh, at risk of, of uh, extinction, and um, that eventually led to the listing in, in 2012. So, you know, it was, a, it was a clear case where you do the science, the science has strong management implications, and, and in, in that case, uh, NOAA Fisheries acted and, and ended up listing the population. Um, a couple of years ago, they uh, released critical habitat for false killer whales in Hawaii, and that, that critical habitat, those areas are based uh, almost entirely on our satellite tagging work. 
So it's another another good example of where um, the science was used to to designate critical habitats and and um, potentially provide additional protection for the animals. Uh, that said, you know, part of part of your original question is, you know, completing something, and 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 clearly the the process isn't complete. Uh, there's lots that need to be done to uh, provide additional protection for false killer whales in Hawaii, and and that's a much more difficult thing to address because it's, you know, how do you how do you deal with fisheries interactions? There's no no good solution to that. Um, the the other thing that's been going on with false killer whales in Hawaii is with the pelagic population and the um, bycatch in the longline fishery. And, and I mentioned uh, restrictions on where longline fishing can occur went into effect back in um, uh, 1991, 1992. So now longline fishing is excluded around the main Hawaiian islands. Um, but the pelagic population overlaps uh, quite extensively with with uh, the longline fleet and uh, bycatch in that fishery is is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. so there's been an effort now for for more than 10 years through the uh, false killer whale take reduction team to try to find solutions to the bycatch problem in the longline fishery, and the efforts aren't they're just not working. Um, you know we mm -hmm. came up came up with a plan to use uh, weaker types of hooks, circle hooks, and and um, uh, stronger branch lines with the idea is that if a false killer whale got hooked on a line, uh, the hook would be the weakest weakest link, so it could potentially straighten that hook and get off, and, and um, all the evidence that's that's coming in suggests that, that the the current configuration just isn't working. So it's, it's definitely still a, a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah. Well, that's pretty awesome, though, that it led to them being listed. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, it's nice. So I'm Canadian originally. I uh, born and raised in Canada, and and worked in in um, both eastern and western Canada for for a long time. And and uh, focusing my work in the U.S. the last uh, 22 years, the the nice thing about the U.S. is that the laws that are in place, both the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act, and then the ability of of groups like Earth Justice or NRDC or Center for Biological Diversity to sue the government when they're not following their own laws, um, all of those things really provide a, a mechanism where science can get translated into to conservation and management. And in a lot of other countries uh, around the world, uh, there's some great science going on and there, there may or may not be some some good laws in place that in theory provide protection, but there's often a bit of a disconnect between uh, how quickly or, or whether whether that science actually um, gets utilized the way it really is meant to be utilized. Mm -hmm. Do you have a rough estimate of what the population might have been in the 60s and then what it is now? Yeah, so for, for false killer whales um, around the main Hawaiian Islands, the uh, there was a survey um, that found groups that uh, of uh, upwards of um, uh, 380, 400 individuals uh, off of Kohala, off Hawaii Island, and those those groups that were seen were um, not necessarily the entire population all 
present in one place at one time. Uh, but the area where they were seen is an area that we know from our satellite tagging work is, is one of the real high density areas for false killer whales today. Uh, the, the most recent abundance estimate from uh, 2015 is uh, about 170 individuals. So, mm. so the population probably went down from, um, you know, four to 500 or more to, to less than 200. And, and we don't really have a good handle on the, uh, the trend in the population in the last 20 years, in part because uh, we just don't see them often enough. Um, and, and folks who live on, or who work on the water um, aren't, aren't seeing them often enough to really have uh, very precise abundance estimates. So, you know, the abundance estimates jump up and down from year to year, and, and, and that variability doesn't necessarily mean the population is going up and down uh, quickly. It just means that um, the, the estimates are not precise enough to really look at the more recent trend. Okay. Yeah, the last time I was in Maui a couple of weeks ago, we had um, a few individuals, like probably about 12 of them passed through the area while we were looking at a mom and calf humpback pair. And uh, But they were spread out over a course of like a mile. Um, so we didn't get like a exact number of how many were there, but it was probably around like 15, it seemed like. Um, but during that encounter, these false killer whales came right to the area with this mom and calf and the mom and calf took off and you could see their fluke prints across the surface, the mom and calves, and then we didn't see them again. Uh, do you, have you um, heard about false killer whales harassing humpback whales at all? Yeah, well, we've, we've certainly seen um, false killer whales swimming around humpbacks on a few occasions and, uh, and typically when that's happened, uh, you know, the humpbacks appear agitated, so a lot of forced blows. Um, but it's it's funny because we've, you know, a, a lot of different species of Adonisites will do that with larger whales. Uh, I was working off of, of Nova Scotia many years ago uh, through Dalhousie University, and and we had um, we had short fin or long fin pilot whales that were harassing uh, northern bottlenose whales and. You know, the smaller, more maneuverable pilot whales were, were harassing the larger bottlenose whales. And then the same group of bottlenose whales later on started harassing a fin whale. And, <laughs> and it's sort of like they're taking out their frustration of being harassed by the pilot whales on this uh, that's funny. larger fin whale that just wasn't able to, to, uh, to do anything about it. Uh, so, you know, we, you know, same kind of thing of, of seeing bottlenose dolphins that sometimes are are beating up on smaller species or I, I've seen Pacific white-sided dolphins um, beating up on a harbor porpoise before and and you know for these species that have interactions with other species sometimes they're they're mutual and and other times they're not yeah because off like especially off Southern California we see gray whales uh, interact with common dolphins offshore and coastal bottlenose dolphins and they always seem to be a very playful encounter yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know we've seen humpback whales and bottlenose dolphins um, in particular juvenile humpback whales but uh, and bottlenose dolphins off Kauai uh, regularly interacting and and often the the humpbacks, are not only bottlenose dolphins, but pilot whales and, and rough-toothed dolphins all interacting with, with humpbacks. And, and often the humpbacks seem to be following the Adonisites around. And, uh, 
and uh, and instigating the interactions to some degree. So I think a lot of it depends. You know, a mother and calf would be a, a good example of where, you know, she she's she just wants to spend time with the calf and protect the calf. And so the kind of uh, avoidance you saw uh, makes sense compared to, yeah. to many other types of circumstances. Yeah, it's all in context and it's hard to interpret sometimes. Yeah. So you mentioned that you did some work with Dalhousie University and then you're originally Canadian and been doing a lot of work in the U.S., but how did, how did it all start? I know a lot of people kind of ask us or ask our, our guests, you know, how did, How'd you get started in this field? Yeah, for, for me, um, it was really a, a college course I was taking in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, at Camosun College, a little community college. I took a, a, a summer ecology class, and um, our, our instructor took us on a field trip over to San Juan Island to, to visit the Whale Museum. And to, we got a lecture from... A researcher there we went out to the west side of san juan island and watched killer whales go by uh, he also was involved uh, as well as uh, one of the people from the whale museum in friday harbor at, at setting up a non-profit group in victoria um, called the international cetacean watch society now defunct but uh, he encouraged the students in his his ecology class to get involved and so i started volunteering with that group i think in probably about 1983 um, and through that, we, we did things like, uh, um, you know, invite people in to give talks, uh, but we also had an opportunity to, to volunteer for uh, researcher Mike Big, who's doing killer whale work. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, in starting in about 1986, started collecting photos for, for Mike's killer whale catalog. Uh, and, and we did that through this nonprofit group. We... We bought a little 14-foot uh, aluminum boat and a 20-horsepower Johnson outboard engine. Um, and uh, a, a professor at the university donated some life jackets to us. Uh, I, I sold my – my girlfriend and I both sold our dive gear and bought camera gear. Uh, and, and Mike would pay for the film and the developing and so just started going out of the water and, and uh, contributing photos for, for him. And that uh, – that led then this was back in the prior to the days of commercial whale watching in the area uh, there was at that point one tour operator that ran out of friday harbor um, and in in 1987 a tour operator opened up in victoria the first first one uh, on the canadian side of the border and uh and uh he would my, my girlfriend at the time she got a job working for him as a naturalist and I got a job working for him as a driver, uh, driving uh, 12 passenger Zodiacs, and um, and it, you know it was a, a fairly relaxed setup. So if we if we had a group of passengers that didn't need to get back at the end of their three hour trip, and we had a really good encounter, we would just stay out longer. <laughs> yeah. We would so all we, stay out longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so actually started collecting data. Uh, well out on these whale watching trips, getting photos and, and recording behavioral information on, on what the whales are doing. Um, that ended up leading that um, ended up being part of my PhD work through Simon Fraser University on, on foraging behavior of, of mammal eating killer whales. So, um, you know, while I was a graduate student, we started up the stranding network in British Columbia, 
I also got involved in, in stranding response and necropsies and collecting samples for various researchers. Uh, and, and that led to a lot of different, uh, a lot of different sort of side projects as well. That's cool. So it all started on the West coast of Canada and then you kind of just stayed on the West coast most of the time, except Dalhousie's on the East coast, right? Yeah. Like I, um, I, I, after finishing my PhD, I, I moved around a little bit. I, uh, lived in Mexico for eight months. I, uh, then went back up to British Columbia, um, then got the postdoc at Dalhousie, so I spent three years in Nova Scotia. Uh, but even during the time in Nova Scotia, I was going back to the West Coast to do continue work with killer whales. I did some work with killer whales in Iceland, um, some uh, a short project uh, off Japan, a project off Italy, a project off New Zealand. So got to got to travel around quite a bit and and work with a lot of different researchers, doing different types of things, but. Um, uh, still, up until maybe about five years ago, continued some of the work with killer whales in the Pacific Northwest. But, but now all of my all of my time and effort is is concentrated in Hawaii. Awesome. So you've been on the water for a long time in many cool places. If you had to pick like a few encounters that were like, the most exciting or the most unique, like what do you have any that you immediately comes to mind? Uh, for me, I, I think probably um, a false killer whale encounter off of uh, off of Kona was probably the uh, the most interesting one. Although it's 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 you know a long list really, but the um, the encounter was particularly interesting because it's the first time that I got to see uh, some really um, interesting prey sharing occurring and. And uh, in that particular case, uh, the whales were really spread out. Um, we were following one animal and it ended up catching, a, I think it was a mahi-mahi. Um, it was just carrying the mahi-mahi around and shortly after it caught the mahi-mahi, other animals started to converge. Um, and that the, the individual that caught the mahi-mahi passed the, the intact fish to a second individual. Um, it passed the fish to a third individual and then that one passed it back to the the one that caught it, and and it was and it wasn't until it was passed back to the one that caught it that they actually started to eat the fish, uh, and then and then all three of them ended up eating the fish, and that was um, certainly extremely memorable encounter. Uh, not just it's exciting to see them catch anything, but um, the the whole concept that they're they're sharing this fish in a in a way that's uh, a little bit different than than most species. You know, if you see a rough-toothed dolphin sharing a fish, it's like one rough-toothed dolphin holding in a fish and another one coming and grabbing a piece off kind of thing. Whereas, <laughs> whereas this was uh, a little bit more uh, symbolic, I think. You know, they were they were uh, passing it around to their 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 buddies, to their their hunting companions, and and no one was actually eating it, and and. Uh, the fact that they were doing that, I think, reflects the the really strong social bonds that that species uh, shares, um, and and I think it also reflects on how important uh, trust is within those types of uh, cooperative hunters. Uh, they have to they have to basically um, trust that they're you know if if their hunting buddy catches something that they're actually going to share it and not just uh, uh, sneak away and eat it all themselves. So. And, and since then, I've seen that kind of behavior a, a few different times, but but that was definitely um, w one of the highlights. 
That's awesome. Well, um, so what's next as you continue to move forward? Obviously, you're still writing grants at home in Drury, Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so what's, you said there's probably a project coming off of Kona and maybe off of Lanai. Is that the plan to do the work in Hawaii for now? Yeah, well, um, you know, we have a a big team of folks working at Cascadia on our Hawaii projects. So um, in the office, we have uh, two people working full time on photo ID catalogs, as well as um, one or more interns helping out with the photo ID catalogs. So there's there's a lot going on in terms of uh, matching individuals and adding them to the catalog. Um, We have uh, someone who is currently analyzing some of our tag data. Uh, looking at at, um, at doing these movement models of animals associated with with sonar exposure, um, uh, we have uh, Jordan Lerma, who you mentioned earlier. Jordan is is uh, in charge of our drone program, and he's uh, in the middle of um, working up our data from some of our photogrammetry that we've been doing uh, with false killer whales and pilot whales uh, using the drone. Um, and over the next few months, uh, I'm hoping to use it as an opportunity to get a lot of writing done. Uh, there's really just sort of an endless number of things that need to be written up. I, before our call today, I was uh, working on a, a manuscript with a, a co-author on dwarf sperm whales. Uh, it's for a, a book uh, book chapter on European mammals that uh, that uh, was actually due a couple months ago, but uh, that we're, we're making progress. Uh, <laughs> And and I have uh, I have a long list of manuscripts that I want to write up. You know, it's it's something that one of my professors when I was in university m- mentioned. If it's not if if it's not published, it was never done. Was his quote. And mm. um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people who uh, collect a lot of information, a lot of data, a lot of photos, a lot of samples. And and the key part is not just collecting it, but it's actually getting everything analyzed and and written out, written up and, and out there so that other people can then build on that kind of work. So, mm-hmm. so I, I, I enjoy the writing part of it. I just wish I had more time to, to do it really. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's kind of hard to like, do you want to write? Do you want to go in the field? For me, I'd rather be in the field, <laughs> but both are important. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, um, that's, I think, all the questions I had. Do you guys have any other ones? Slater. <laughs> I was just thinking for, like, our listeners, because there's a lot of people that are in college right now. Do you have any recommendations on how they can get started? But, I mean, you kind of said it yourself. Volunteering is, is obviously a good way to get into the field, right? Yeah. You know, and it, it's funny because – Nowadays, um, there, there's internship programs, and and a lot of people spend time um, doing that kind of volunteer work. But I, I was doing that, uh, you know, 30 years ago as well, and and um, so it's not really a new phenomenon. I, I I can definitely attribute a lot of what I'm able to do today and have been doing for a long time to to just spending a lot of hours um, trying to to learn new things and help out other researchers and, and get opportunities. Um, so that's definitely part of it. But, um, you know, uh, I think, uh, I think that there's so many different types of ways of getting into the field. Um, part of it, if you look at what's limiting, uh, honestly, it's things like 
skills in in uh, modeling and statistics and using R. Uh, you know, I, I I would highly recommend anyone who's in college now, if they're not, um, if they if they don't use R for 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 stats or for modeling, they should start. It's uh, better to start that kind of thing when you're young. And um, uh, on the other hand, I would I would also, and I've, I've said this for many, many years, I think if, you, if you're not a birder, you should become a birder. Uh, birders <laughs> are, tend to be really good observers. They are always paying attention to small details. And I was a, I was a birder before I got into marine mammals. And, and I think that that's been something that's really uh, valuable in terms of um, you know, honing my observational skills over the years. You know, you're you're trying to spot and figure out what small, fast-moving things are, and um, and and that comes can be really, really important when you know you're uh, witnessing something that's happening really, really quickly on the water, or something that's really distant, and you know, being able to pick up on those those really subtle cues that you may only have a brief opportunity to do. So. Yeah. Those are my two suggestions. Learn to program in R and become a bird. <laughs> Speaking of birds, didn't, didn't your project have a bunch of incidental observations of storm petrels and you were able to help distinguish one species into two species a few years ago? Yeah, um, well, we, we certainly record uh, birds while we're out on the water, and we always have. Um, and we contribute all of our bird photos to uh, a researcher in California, Peter Pyle, um, I think you're particularly referring to a paper that that Peter published uh, a few years ago. There's there's uh, three or four different species of storm petrels in Hawaiian waters, but two of them look very very similar: uh, band rump storm petrels and and leeches storm petrels. And and once digital cameras became available, and and in our case, you know, usually I'm driving the boat, and so if we see a storm petrel, we will follow it and and have multiple people trying to get photos of it. And this applies to other species of birds as well, any any rare or unusual species. And what Peter was able to do is take these series sometimes of a hundred or more photos of one bird. And and instead of doing what most people have done, which is you take one photo or or you take a hundred photos and you send one of the photos, the best one, to to someone to identify and they say it's it's so and so, what what Peter would do is he would look at each photo independently and, and say, based on what I can see in this photo, I would call this a band rump storm petrel, or I'd call this a leech's storm petrel. And what he discovered is that in a hundred photos of a band rump storm petrel, there may be three or four of them that, depending on the angle, actually look like a leech's storm petrel. And the <laughs> same goes the other direction. So it, it sort of emphasized that um, even when you're 100% confident of what species this is because you've got 100 photos of it, uh, that that your ability to accurately identify it is going to depend on the angle of the photos. And and so um, it's it's just a, a small example of the kinds of uh, things that – and we're, we're out there studying whales and dolphins, but we're also taking photos when we can and, and contributing them to bird researchers and – and, and they can be quite valuable that way. So we've also been along the same lines, we collect squid and we've been, um, that we find floating dead at the surface. And, and uh, we've collected probably 140 dead squid over the years, that, at least 20 different species of squid in Hawaii that we've collected. Uh, and that includes uh, one species that's not yet been described. Uh, it's a 
Onychia used to be called Morotuthis, but it's a, a genus of squid that uh, prior to uh, our first collections of them, um, probably 12, 15 years ago now, uh, was thought to be just a temperate uh, water squid. And, and we started collecting these. We collected three uh, on our last project in November. Um, we started collecting these and, and it's, it's a different, a new species uh, in that genus uh, that that um, you know is just sort of awaiting formal uh, formal description, um, and we've also collected some squid in Hawaii that it's you know the first record from Hawaii of that species or the second record, and uh, so it's been a really you know all of these little things you can do that that contribute in small ways, but uh, they they slow, you know build up over time and it's a really valuable uh, contribution. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> We're all in unison. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It was pretty exciting to um, get a researcher on that has done such interesting work, and um, even in my own area that I've been working in. So I learned a few things today. So that's pretty yeah. fun. Um, oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Any last thoughts or questions? Are we all good? I think we're all good. Slater, did you get any photos of those false killer whales? If so, we'd like to we'd like to get them. <laughs> I honestly got one photo. No, I didn't. Nothing like, <laughs> no, not ideal, really. Maybe the two though. times I'll, I'll I've seen them, I've again. not had a camera. It was it was <laughs> literally at sundown, like so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and it well, and, and one thing I'll add um, for for anyone who works off of California. Um, Cascadia actually has a photo ID catalog from um, the west coast of Central America, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, uh, and collaborates with researchers um, in, in Mexico and, and, and folks off California. So if anyone sees false killer whales along the west coast, uh, we'd also be very interested in photos for, the, for that catalog. So. Oh, cool. <laughs> awesome. I don't even know if I could find my photos. At first. I saw them off California, but man, it had to have been like 2012. I don't even, I wasn't good at taking pictures then. <laughs> awesome well thanks for taking time to uh and uh good luck with all of your writing while you're home in washington and uh maybe i'll see you next fall in the hawaiian islands yeah sounds good well thanks very much good talking yeah, to you all. Thank, thank you, you thank you all right take care bye Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. Hope you enjoyed all that information from Robin Baird. If you want to follow along with their research, it's Cascadia Research, I believe, on Instagram and uh, Facebook as well. And then if you guys don't follow us on Instagram, you're pretty much missing out. It's uh, whale, It's the Whale Nerds on all platforms now, right? At Whale Nerds. Yeah, at Whale Nerds. Yeah. No, though. Just at Whale Nerds. Um, and our Facebook page, we're getting caught up on all of our episodes, but also posting um, links to like how to sign up for Marmam and internships and volunteer opportunities. And so that'll be pretty exciting once we're all caught up with episodes. We'll also share all the links of things that we reference throughout episodes, too, so you can access them there because it's a little easier to share online through Facebook for the, that content. Hey, let me tell you something. What? Justin Timberlake told them to drop the the on the Facebook. Okay? <laughs> so we dropped the the on the whale nerds. It's just at whale nerds. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys and have a great day. Thank you. Bye everyone.